The UN's annual climate talks ended with a general call for greater efforts to tackle climate change, but no agreement on rules for international carbon markets. Major polluters continue to resist efforts to keep climate change at bay amid signs that time may be running out to stem global warming. Nick Schreck is an environmental policy expert and an associate dean at the University of Detroit Mercy Law School. Hi, Nick. Hello, Pat. So what's your takeaway from this year's climate summit in Madrid? Well, I think it shows a real lack of global leadership at these talks. Um, There was a lot of infighting about kind of technical details of how to try and meet the goals of the Paris Accord. And really the goals there were to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius or about, you know, three degrees Fahrenheit above the the pre-industrial levels that we had globally. And to try and get to that point, there's a lot of steps that have to be taken, namely reducing our emissions of greenhouse gases. And the countries have not uh, really set their targets appropriately to to keep us below that, that level of warming. So this conference, I think, has largely been viewed as a a failure or a missed opportunity to set those aggressive targets to get us where we need to be. And I think that comes down to a lack of leadership. Fundamentally, the United States, um, because we're pulling out of the Paris Agreement um, as of next year, we're just not there. We're, we're, we're participating in those talks, but really um, kind of a, a sort of silent partner or perhaps helping to run a little interference um, while those talks progress. As we look back on some of the conversations you and I have had this year, a couple of things stood out for me. One is uh, a report that our oceans are getting warmer and rising. At the same time, uh, we've seen record high water levels here on the Great Lakes. Uh, what do these threats pose? Yeah, so with with the oceans, I mean, we certainly have the risk of what we call coastal hazards. And so these are where we're looking at increased erosion. Um, There's already out in California, they've had to move some major roads um, off the coast. You're looking at massive uh, value of property of just basically being, you know, washed away into the oceans. Um, More intense storms, the warmer oceans also hold more energy so that when you have events like hurricanes or when you when you have um, major storms coming in in the Pacific, they tend to be larger, more powerful, with more moisture, and all of that. Um, so you're you're seeing again the the coastal hazards, the flooding, the erosion, but then also the risk of more severe weather, which are causing problems. Um, here in the Great Lakes, it, it's similar, just a, just sort of a different problem. So the Great Lakes do have these cycles where we see high water levels and lower water levels over time every several years. But what's fascinating is just in the last few years, we went from a record low level Great Lakes water levels. Now we're up to a record high. And a lot of that has to do, again, with these changing precipitation patterns because of a warming climate. We're seeing more rain um, and, in fact, more snow in parts of the Great Lakes uh, Basin or the Great Lakes Watershed, where where that rain and snow stays relatively um, close by here in the Great Lakes. And so we're seeing just more more wet weather, and that's leading to higher lake levels, which again are causing problems with flooding and with coastal erosion. Um, and we're seeing a, a lot of people that are having real, real difficulty keeping the lake out of their backyard, um, which of course causes losses of property. But because of the cyclical nature of the rising and falling of the lakes, is there any policy that could actually affect that? Well, it's interesting. We we can control to a degree some of the depth of the Great Lakes. Um, Lake Ontario is the best example. Through the Welland Canal at the end of Lake Ontario, um, officials can actually hold back water or release water. But this is just, you know, we're talking inches maybe in difference. And that's really um, designed to keep shipping and commerce um, going through Lake Ontario and through those canals. The types of changes we're seeing are really, you know, outside of what we can do by letting a little bit more water go through a canal or through the locks up in Sault Ste. Marie. Um, So, 
Yes, I mean the cyclical nature is a, is a challenge, um, but what's what what we can do is we can work at trying to reduce the impacts um, when we do have higher lake levels, and that means looking at you know where is the line where we allow people to build um, up to the Great Lakes. You know where is that that floodplain? You know, and and there's a lot of communities now all around the Great Lakes that are looking at restricting development in these these Great Lakes coastal areas because with higher lake levels. Those properties are at threat, and they're potentially a big loss for insurance companies. Um, and then some of those are, are insurance companies guaranteed by the government, meaning that all of us are paying um, to, to kind of keep these properties um, right next to the Great Lakes. So, so that's one thing that you're looking at is, you know, should we allow this type of development this close to the Great Lakes? And I think there's a lot of second-guessing going on there. And I feel like uh, we've talked a lot this year about the emerging threat that PFAS right. pose. Those are chemicals. They're compounds. I'm not going to say the scientific name because that's not going <laughs> to clear things up either. But basically, these are things that have been used in manufacturing uh, various products uh, over decades. Uh, and we've seen them turn up uh, in our waterways. Uh, the Huron River, for example, we've seen advisories uh, for right. consumption. Um, this seems like, I mean, we talked a lot about it this year, but it seems like this is going to be a conversation we're going to be having for the next few years. Absolutely. So again, these are chemicals that are used in things like nonstick coating on cookware, also waterproofing on clothing. Um, one of the big sites that we have in Michigan where there's high levels of, of contamination of these PFAS and PFOA chemicals is near the old Wolverine um, Hush Puppies uh, shoe factory on the western side of the state where they were using these chemicals to waterproof shoes. And that, that leather and, and other materials that's, that was discarded there on that property has been leaching into the ground. You're right, we're seeing this in the Huron River area. Um, we're also seeing this um, up near Wordsmith uh, Air Force Base near Oscoda um, from firefighting foam, which is another use of these chemicals. So the problem is, is that these are really long strands of carbon, basically. They don't break down in the environment, but they do accumulate in our bodies. So we're worried over the long term about what health implications may result um, after ingesting this PFAS, primarily through our drinking water. So Michigan is actually working on drinking water standards for PFAS and PFOA, so we'll be looking towards that in 2020. There's also some action at the Environmental Protection Agency federally looking at these chemicals and trying to have more strict regulations because right now there's a, a lifetime exposure limit that they have for PFAS, but that's really not a standard that we use for drinking water or for food safety issues. So we're, we're going to see a lot of action, hopefully addressing those chemicals in 2020 and beyond. What environmental story do you think has been overlooked this year? Well, I, I think really what we've, we've talked a lot about things like Great Lakes water levels. We've heard a lot about that. We've talked a lot about um, droughts and heavy rains also in Michigan. You remember early in the growing season, there were farmers were, were basically delaying um, putting in their crops because of a lot of rain um, and flooding on their, on their uh, farms. So I, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of these issues, but I think what we haven't kind of coalesced on is the fact that this is really all resulting from a warming climate and a changing climate. And I think it's hard sometimes to conceptualize what is a, really a global issue, global warming, but we, we're seeing the impacts here in Michigan right now. And I don't think we're always making the connection between, oh gosh, we're, we're seeing these extreme weather events um, in the spring and we're seeing high Great Lakes levels or we're seeing um, more invasive species being able to establish themselves here in the state. And Many of those things are related to climate change, or climate change is the driver of those phenomena. And so I think that's really what we, we're still missing the mark on connecting all of these different environmental stories to what I think is really the big driver here, which is climate change. 
We've seen people demand action this year, uh, including uh, Greta Thunberg, the Swedish teenager who became something of an international youth spokesperson, I guess, for uh, addressing climate change. Closer to home, Toledo voters this year approved something called the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, essentially saying that the lake as a living ecosystem has rights, uh, including the right to be clean. Um, Seems like a novel approach, uh, but, you know, there are people paying attention to this, but... Is it, is it enough? Well, there's a growing movement to it's something called the rights of nature. And basically this is recognizing whether it's lakes like Lake Erie or rivers, natural systems, basically treating them as, as if they were people, giving them the legal rights as you or I to be able to go into court and protect themselves. And that was the whole idea behind the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, arguing that um, whether they were large uh, farming corporations or big industrial polluters, that they had an outsized influence in the policy and legal debates around Lake Erie and that the lake should be able to defend itself. Now, of course, there will be a, a person who will be designated as the, maybe the advocate that, that protects Lake Erie. Um, but that's the idea. And we're seeing this movement spread across the country. And it actually started internationally. And so this is a, a legal idea, a concept that was borrowed from international law to try and address these, these tough environmental problems that our current system of, of environmental laws are not prepared to address. Um, so when we talk about things like non-point or the, the pollution on land that makes its way into Lake Erie, our Clean Water Act doesn't address that effectively. Um, when we talk about climate change, our Clean Air Act doesn't address climate change effectively. And so we need to come up with these new ideas. And that's where um, I think a lot of like the youth climate strikers and folks that are looking at ideas like the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, are trying to come up with new creative solutions to meet these challenges that our current system of environmental laws was not designed to address and has very clumsily attempted in fits and starts to try and and tackle these problems. So we really do need to see a shift. We need some new federal legislation. And I think we also need um, to continue to have people getting out in the streets, but then also uh, contacting their elected officials and demanding that we, we face some of these challenges, particularly global climate change, but also closer to home. You know, how do we deal with, with things like non-point, that, that sort of pollution on land that gets into our waters? Because we're not effectively regulating that right now. But when you talk about new laws, new regulations, might that hinder efforts that are happening in the private sector? For example, we saw both of our large utility companies, DTE and Consumers Energy this year, outline plans to uh, reduce their carbon footprint to zero uh, over the next 20 years or so. These are ambitious, uh, but uh, the uh, Patty Poppy, the uh, CEO of Consumers Energy, says, look, this is our responsibility. You know, we have to we have to enact energy policies that are good for the planet. She recognizes uh, the uh, threat that uh, climate change poses. Might uh, would we would we risk over regulating and and hampering efforts like that at the private level? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, that that's right. I mean, Detroit Edison and consumers, I mean, they they live here, their employees live here. Um, they want to make sure that they've got um, a Michigan uh, in the future for them to, to, to be here and to, and to have their certainly their businesses, but also to have their employees um, um, live and thrive. And so, I, I mean, I think it's an interesting question in that we don't want to disincentivize um, companies from doing the right thing. We want to encourage them to continue to do the right thing and move towards that zero um, fossil fuels-based future that we know we need to get to. Um, you know, I, and I think it's, it's great that they're, they're moving in that direction, that these pledges are there. But I will say we've known about this problem. We've known about the looming climate crisis for many years. Um, and those same companies actually fought efforts to greatly reduce our CO2 emissions over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so I, while I think it's good that they're coming around, um, we still need to have 
some sort of regulatory floor that will push companies that maybe aren't as responsive as consumers' energy towards moving towards a green energy future, we need to bring those companies along as well. And there aren't ways to always just do that voluntarily. We sometimes need to have, you know, a regulatory floor or, you know, the stick, if you will, to go along with the carrot, which would be things like tax incentives and, you know, giving them um, various uh, business investment incentives to do the right thing. We also need to have that stick, which would be regulation saying, you know what, uh, this is a threat that we're not only anticipating in the future, we're experiencing it today in Michigan from a warming climate, and we need to aggressively reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We know that, we know how to do it. It's just moving our financial resources into that lane, right? So so going from, you know, may, maybe shareholders don't get quite as much of a return from our, our uh, investor-owned utilities here in the state. A little bit of that money may have to go towards investing in renewables, um, or else we're going to continue to see this deterioration of our climate um, due, due to greenhouse gas emissions. 